This is episode 88 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear a tale from the dark side of magic. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 88. Welcome to 2023 for my regular listeners. If you're new to the podcast, welcome as well. This is the place for magic history in the podcasting world. There are some really great magic-related podcasts out there dealing with all manner of topics. For example, if you're looking for something uh, marketing-related, I would suggest Branding for Entertainers by Billy Diamond and the Professional Magicians podcast by Chris Johnson. Both provide great content and information. A wonderful interview show is the long-running The Magic Word podcast by Scott Wells. He's got over 700 episodes and is still going. And if you like both of those things, interviews, stories, a little bit of history, marketing, Discourse and Magic by Jonah Babbins is a real winner. But my favorite podcast is my own. Well, it's the one I work the hardest on. And today I've got a doozy of a subject. Let me state something first. I am rather protective of the world of magic. I try to present this history in an upstanding and professional manner. I do not care for people who put down or belittle magic and magicians. I do my best to give you the full story, sometimes with warts and all. Uh, Magicians are just people at the end of the day, and it's those frailties that make us human. I can tell you that I regularly, regularly block people online that put up videos exposing magic or making fun of magic. I have no time for these types of people. It actually infuriates me when I see this stuff. And how do I put this? What gives somebody the right to expose something that others have paid good money for and possibly invested a great deal of time and effort in perfecting. There's a fellow right now who makes prank videos, who frankly was once a really, really incredible magician. And he's given it all away uh, to do these prank videos. But along the way, he's given away the methods to some illusions and to a number of tricks and shame on him. And I'm not going to name his name, but he should have more respect for the art form that he chose to follow. Now, that brings me to today. Um, And if what I'm going to describe to you just happened, if this event just happened, I probably wouldn't cover it on this podcast. But this particular thing happened 90 years ago. So I think it's going to be okay. And as I said in the opening bumper, it's um, it's a, a tale from the dark side. It's kind of like a true life detective story, really. Um, there's also a second reason that this episode almost didn't get made. And I'm going to save that for the end. And before I get into the actual podcast episode, I do want to mention this. I have been putting up some items on eBay. Uh, for sale, different magic history items. I put up some uh, Virgil and Julie ephemera. Um, I'm getting ready to put a um, a poster up, a Virgil and Julie vintage poster, maybe two of them. 
Um, I've got a bunch of books that I'm getting ready to put up on eBay as well. These are all magic history books. And I think there's a figurine in there, a magician-related figurine uh, that I just happen to have a duplicate of. So I'm going to put that on eBay as well. And um, so if you're interested and you want to check out some of the stuff that I am uh, getting rid of, uh, you can go to, just look up, go to eBay and type in Carnegie Magic. I think it's just one word, Carnegie Magic. And my, my page with my stuff should come up. And you can check out the various magic history things that I have. Um, I've also got um, Houdini bobbleheads available there. So if uh, you never had a chance to get a Houdini bobblehead because they came out 20 years ago, um, I have um, I have four cases of them. So uh, I'll be putting them up occasionally on uh, on eBay. Also, uh, back in December, the last podcast that I did, um, I mentioned that there was a contest. And I only had one person enter the contest. What's going on, people? So the fellow that enters the, entered the contest actually answered the bonus question, not the other question, the main question. So I've got to uh, find his email and contact him and uh, get a, a prize out to him. So um, I'll have another contest here, contest here soon. But uh, for now, let's get into today's strange and dark episode. Let me introduce a gentleman by the name of Ralph Emerson Powell. He was born November 12, 1903 in Cleveland, Ohio, the son of a highly respected Cleveland surgeon. He was described by author and magician John Booth as tall, heavyset, and awkward. By all accounts, he was a rather creative fellow. His name appears in the linking ring numerous times where he entered and placed in various magic contests. He's actually credited with the popular trick known as Stung, Stung Again, a platform trick which is still produced today. He won first place for the best anti-spiritualistic or mind-reading effect called the Wonder Tube. He also came in fourth in the best trick in the new mechanical apparatus category with a giant cigarette dropper. From the Fort Wayne IBM Convention Contest, Powell won first place for the best trick employing livestock with the visible block vanish. Same convention, he came in fourth for the best card trick with something called simply card mysteries. He won fourth place for the best trick with me mechanical apparatus. He came in fourth with the best presentation of any trick using a Deland deck of cards. If I may quote this section of the linking ring, then all who had Powell's stung trick know the fun that can be had from that. However, the new routine he gave us is a corker, adding so much to it as it does. Ralph is outdoing himself in the super card stunts as he is getting more of them out in this size. And you never can tell. Maybe this size will supersede the jumbos that the same way that they put out the regular size. Anyway, Brother Powell, stick to it as you have something there that, well, that can at least be seen by people. 
Notice especially, though, that this routine is not the standard one since this is fully protected as well as the performing rights of the effect. The climaxes, etc., have all been very cleverly worked out with the due amount of sucker play. The giant monte is the old gag and new dress, and with the addition that will fool you. Only remember this, the effect is protected, so watch out. So from that statement, I gather a couple things. First, Ralph Powell seems to understand something that is a pet peeve among stage magicians, and that is having props that can be seen. Jumbo cards are fine for platform settings, but honestly, they appear like regular cards on a stage. And Powell was, well, he was creating effects with cards that were even larger than that. Smart man. But on the reverse, it says that the trick was protected. This is some sort of restricting performance rights, and I don't know what the conditions were, however. There was no TV back then, so you couldn't restrict the TV rights. If you were restricting some sort of performing rights, then why purchase the item at all? Uh, so on that, I'm confused. But given that it was a popular item, I suppose the restrictions were fairly limited. Now, he first appears in the March 1930 issue of The Linking Ring in a column on the Akron Ring number 38. Here he gives a talk on the psychology of love. What that has to do with magic is beyond me, but it's recorded as such, and they even mention how nice it would have been to have met Mr. Powell earlier in life to take his smart advice, but now it was too late. The Sphinx magazine covered this event also and said, Powell gave an interesting talk on the psychology of everything except magic. From May 1931, he comes in fifth for a trick called Matt from Madagascar in the best pocket trick category. He comes in second with the best trick with miscellaneous objects category with something that he called the airplane card trick. All throughout the 1930s, his name appears in the linking ring and sometimes in other magazines as well. He was clearly active in the IBM ring in Cleveland and active in the Cleveland area. There's even a photo of his stage set up in one of the magazines, which, frankly, it's quite impressive. So, let's get back to something John Booth mentioned in the Linking Ring, April 2006, in a column called My Mysterious Magic Friend. He mentions that he met Powell when he was a teenager. He also mentions that Powell was likely 10 years older than he was. So, if Booth was 16, then Powell was 26. According to Booth, Booth wanted to attend the IBM National Convention because it was due to be in Ohio. This was around 1926-27. But it looked unlikely because his teenage billfold held no funds. But then, surprisingly, Powell offered him a ride to the convention. Not only that, but Powell said, well, I've also got a mattress that I keep in the back of my vehicle, so uh, the two of us could sleep on that and cut costs even further. Now, as wonderful as that sounded, uh, Booth had to back out. And, of course, I'm saying wonderful rather sarcastically, as it's a rather strange thing to say the least. I carry a mattress in my car. Yeah, right. Then we have Stuart Kramer's take on Ralph Powell. Kramer was a protege of Carl Germain, both from Cleveland. By all accounts, in the linking ring, Powell sounds like an interesting guy. 
who was busy with magic, either as a hobby or a profession. John Booth signals the first sign of something unusual with that odd invitation, but perhaps this was just a strange misunderstanding. Stuart Kramer was not a fan of Powell's, and apparently knew him well. Not only that, he also assisted Powell in some of his shows. Performances that were, to quote Kramer, pretty awful shows at rundown movie theaters. From the Perennial Mystics Periodical by James Hagee in 1989, we find that Powell, again, according to Stuart Kramer, was pushy and with the conviction that he was one of the greatest magicians. Powell was rather obnoxious at the early IBM conventions and became, well, became the butt of many jokes. In a Magic Magazine article, June 2003, Stuart Kramer shares that Powell was performing on stage at an IBM convention. His act was running long, and someone raised the back curtain during his act, and then, out of nowhere, Joe Berg and Jack Gwynn silently walked across the back of the stage carrying a ladder and a bucket. And this got a big laugh out of the audience, but Powell assumed the laughs were due to his own clever jokes. I was curious as to why Stuart Kramer thought Powell was so bad. Well, a July 1985 issue of The Linking Ring uh, sheds more light. In a column called Handling Live Props Tricky, Stuart Kramer explains that Powell, quote, did a lot of harm to magic in the Cleveland area due to his poor taste and inept performances. One example was producing a dead rabbit during a show. The reason that the poor rabbit had died, well, he had suffocated while the act went on. And by the time he was produced, well, there he is. He's a dead rabbit. Another time, Powell produced a pigeon who flew straight into a wall and broke its neck and died. Now, you might say, well, you know, such a thing, that could happen to anyone. Well, this was not the average magician's dove, but rather a live, wild pigeon that he picked up from the local park. Kramer admits in one article that Ralph Powell was the first magician he'd ever met, but he eventually cut off all communication and friendship when the latter showed up to one of his gigs and heckled him. It was at a department store where Kramer was demonstrating tricks from a magic set, and at one point Powell showed up and apparently interrupted his presentation and kept telling alternative ways of doing things. Very unprofessional. And it did not sit well with Stuart Kramer, who felt that was the last straw. Now, let me introduce another character into this story. His name? Elliot Ness. Yes, that Elliot Ness. The former G-Man, who was the leader of the group known as the Untouchables, who helped to bring down Al Capone and his crime organization in Chicago. Elliot Ness was working for the Justice Department along with members of the Treasury Department and local police in an effort to take down Al Capone. They raided his warehouses, destroyed his stills and breweries, and crippled Capone's illegal bootlegging business during the height of Prohibition. In the mid-1930s, Elliot Ness was transferred to Cleveland, and here he was hired by the mayor of Cleveland, Harold Burton, to be the city's safety director. It sounds like a job created just for Elliot Ness. 
Mr. Ness would be in charge of both the police department and the fire department in Cleveland. In September of 1934, a body of a female was found near the shore of Lake Erie, according to the Cleveland Police Museum. The body was a torso. The thighs were intact, but the legs were cut off at the knees. She had been decapitated. She was dubbed by the press the Lady of the Lake. A year later, on September 23rd of 1935, two bodies were found in the Kingsbury Run area of Cleveland. The two dead bodies were dismembered torsos, the head, arms, and legs having been removed from the victims. The Kingsbury Run area was a creek bed that ran straight to the Cuyahoga River, but the area itself had become known for its shantytown. A shantytown was a makeshift community made up of tiny buildings, made up of scraps of wood and cardboard and dirt, where homeless people, transients, and prostitutes stayed. It was during the Great Depression, and many cities had shantytowns that had popped up. They were high crime areas, filthy living conditions, and very dangerous. Over the course of three years, seven male torsos and five female torsos were found in the area. Various body parts were discovered among the torsos, but it was noted that all the victims had been decapitated. Most of the victims were believed to have lived in or near the shantytown. One man, the second corpse discovered, turned out to be a local orderly at a hospital. Elliot Ness, being the safety director of Cleveland, was called in to investigate and hopefully catch the man the media had dubbed the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. He oversaw the investigation, but others were more directly involved. Two detectives, Peter Marillo and Martin Zalewski, were assigned to the case. They often posed undercover as hobos in their investigations. They themselves interviewed 1,500 suspects. The authorities knew they were looking for someone with a possible medical background and likely had access to medical equipment. This was due to the way the bodies had been dismembered. One of the most surprising discoveries came on August 16, 1938. Some scrap collectors found the torso of a female in a dump site near Lakeside Street and East 9th. In this case, the head was also found wrapped in butcher paper. As the police investigated the site, another body was discovered in the same area. What made this particular discovery even more shocking was the fact that this location could clearly be seen from Elliot Ness's office window. Many suspected the killer was taunting Ness on his inability to be caught. Two days later, the former untouchable, now the city of Cleveland's safety director, along with almost 50 police and detectives, raided the shanty town near Kingsbury Run. Everyone from that area, 63 individuals, were brought in for questioning. Then, one by one, the police checked out the various buildings, looking for clues or anything that might point them to the killer. But that wasn't all. When all the buildings had been searched, Elliot Ness then ordered that the shanty town be burned to the ground. The media and the public were not pleased at this drastic move by Ness, but the murders stopped. Now, what does this have to do with magic? Well, remember Ralph Emerson Powell? He was a prime suspect. 
He was brought in numerous times and investigated. He frankly fit the profile, at least to a degree. He certainly had access to medical equipment because of his father. He was an unusual fellow, to say the least. He had a reputation for bizarre behavior. And later in life was committed to the Newberry Insane Asylum in Cleveland. He was never arrested for being the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. According to the Perennial Mystics Periodical, number 7, Dr. Sam Gerber, who was the coroner of Cuyahoga County, thought that Powell was a very good suspect. Apparently, the police must have thought so too, because Powell's residence was one of the first places the police visited upon each body being discovered. But in the end, no one was ever arrested for the crime. The man who Elliot Ness felt was the best suspect was a doctor named Francis Sweeney. He had been a doctor during World War I and was part of a medical unit that conducted amputations on wounded soldiers. He was a severe alcoholic and suffered from mental issues, possibly from being gassed during the war. He had an office not far from Kingsbury Run. When Ness brought him in for questioning, he was highly intoxicated. It took several days for him to sober up, but despite intense questioning, Sweeney never admitted to the murders. In fact, following the interrogation, he checked himself into an insane asylum. There was never any hard evidence that Sweeney was the killer, nor was there evidence that Powell was the killer. They merely fit the profile. Strange, though, that both men ended their days in a sanatorium. Powell was said to have emasculated one of the guards, which led to him being put in solitary confinement, and this is where he spent his last days. Sweeney continued to send postcards to Elliot Ness, taunting him for the remainder of his life. As for Elliot Ness, this case brought about his downfall. He divorced his wife in 1938. Strangely, as time went on, Ness became more and more of an alcoholic, the very thing, alcohol, that he fought Al Capone over. He never caught the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. And yet, due to Ness's extreme actions, isn't it possible he did get his man after all? If nothing else, the murders stopped. If all that isn't wild enough, according to the Cleveland Police Museum, all records pertaining to the torso killings have been lost, stolen, or removed. Crazy, huh? That is a wild, wild story. So I mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast that this episode almost did not get made. And um, I originally thought the idea of a magician as a suspect in a serial killer crime sounded like a great story, especially since it happened 100 years ago. And then something happened that hit a little too close to home. Someone I know and cared very deeply for was murdered on January 2nd. The killer being a family member. It's shocking, and I'm not going to go into details, but it made this whole idea of a murder story episode a little too personal. And oh, oh, and for the record, no, I'm not a suspect, nor was it a magician who committed that murder, but the murder happened in another country. Um, 
But still, it, it made me made me step back for a moment and rethink this episode. And as I began to look over the research that I'd already done and started looking at the pictures from 1930, I got to thinking about how helpless the public must have felt during that time. Because frankly, when I heard the news of my, my dear friend, I felt completely helpless. And honestly, I still do. I don't understand man's cruelty to man. I just don't understand. I can't comprehend that my dear friend is gone, and frankly, I can't hardly speak of it. But suffice to say, uh, it made finishing this episode a little harder, but I got it done. And that, my friends, is going to do it for this dark episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you like this episode, please like the episode in whatever way your podcasting provider will allow. And until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thank you for listening. Please be well and be kind to one another.